0: Um so um you know have you ever met somebody before famous ever wish that tonight's your night <laughs> <laughs> uh Billy uh, D- Daniel and and I met Billy uh he's teaching a class in Charlotte or he's part of a teaching uh a, a, part of the leadership team for a class that Daniel and I are going to in Charlotte called Colson Fellows at Some of you have heard me talk about. We had the opportunity; we've had the opportunity to listen to him speak a few times, and immediately uh, recognize just a gift of a teacher inside of him. Uh, What do you do at the school? Are you like the toilet cleaner, or what do you do there exactly? Yeah. So, um, in addition to cleaning toilets, uh, I serve as the dean of academics, and so that sounds like a real fancy title. It's not. how many of y'all use Canvas? We'll let you take it from here. Are you good? We'll okay. So how many of y'all use Canvas at like, your schools? The LMS it's how they, they do all your homework and stuff, and so I'm responsible for that. But my, my most – I guess the, the thing I enjoy most about my job is that uh, I get to teach students, uh, students like you. Um, high school students, I teach college at our church. Um, I get to the opportunity of pouring in to teachers and to adults um, – and, and let me just warn you, I see there's a, a clock up there, and I know I've got a time limit. And, uh, but I'm passionate about this. I'm passionate about what we're going to talk about tonight. And so um, I'll try not to put you to sleep before 11, uh, but we'll see what happens, all right? And so I, I love to teach um, apologetics, and I love to teach about biblical worldview, but, but let me give a, a caution about apologetics. You know, as we study apologetics and we think about how we're going to engage with the culture that is around us, a lot of times when we study apologetics, we're focused on winning arguments. And if, if that's the purpose, then you'll, you'll cut corners and you'll, you'll lose people. And so when we're talking about apologetics, we're talking about worldview, we're talking about engaging the culture, I want you to focus on the picture. I want you to focus on the person in front of you that's an image bearer. They may not act like one. They may not even know what that means. But some of the stuff we're going to talk about tonight, some of the stuff you've talked about already, some of the stuff you'll talk about in the future, and as you move throughout your Christian life and you learn more about this thing we call a Christian worldview and how to engage with people, you will be tempted to just win arguments. Don't do that. Be able to do that. But love people. One of my Schaefer. And what Francis Schaefer said, he said, See the person in front of you and treat them as the image-bearer that God has made them in Genesis chapter 2 and not the sinners that we are in Genesis chapter 3. And when we see people as image-bearers, it will transform the way we engage with them. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Romans chapter 1. Thank you so much to the praise team. You guys make this easy for me when you... You, you welcome the Spirit into this place. You welcome the Spirit here. Because nothing I'm going to say today is going to be revolutionary if it's not in the truth of the Word as brought forth by the Holy Spirit. You all had no way of knowing this. One of my favorite songs is the Anastasis song, the old Praise the Name song. I feel as if I could run through a wall at the end of that song. And so Luke comes over and he's like, here, here's the microphone. It's muted. Don't worry. They're not going to hear you sing. And I'm getting amped up back there, ready to go. And then I got to sit in about 15 minutes of just sweet, savory worship to quell my heart and to prepare us for what we're going to look at today, for just leading us into that. All right, let's look at Romans chapter 1. I didn't intend for this to be like a sermon, but I guess it's going to turn out that way. And let's begin in verse 18. And this is what the Word of God says. Now, let's make sure we understand. The Word of God is fallible, it is true, it is inerrant, and it is the standard by which that we gauge and we live our lives. And this is what the Word of God says about us. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So it's really going to be a positive message, right? Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. How do we know this? Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking And their foolish heart. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of God, of the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now we could continue on reading the rest of that chapter and it's probably one of the, some of the scariest verses in all of scripture. Therefore, because God is, because we have chosen to worship creation over creator, God gives us over. He says, okay, that's what you want to do. I'm going to let you do it. But what does that word futile mean? Anybody know? And it says that your minds became futile. What he means here is your minds don't work the way they're supposed to. Because our minds, they undergo something called the noetic effects of sin. What this means is that our minds are fallen, and so we don't think the way we should about things. Now, we can, we can do reason, and we can structure arguments, and we can do all these things, but our sinful nature is always to move our minds away from truth and towards falsehood. Because what happens here is Paul sets this up to say, here's what this looks like. That our hearts were darkened and our minds don't work the way they're supposed to. And then when we understand Romans chapter 1, we get to a lot of people's life verse in Romans chapter 12. See, what Paul does here is he begins this chapter and he shows how that the wrath of God is revealed against us because we suppress what is true. But and we are not. And so what happens is that God's going to continue all the way through the rest of the book and show how this, the, the sinfulness of man affects everything about us. You know, looking at a lot of young people in the room, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but your body's going to break down one day. I'm 43 years old, and I run the risk of sneezing in the shower and pulling a muscle. <laughs> and You laugh. But I know some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Or you wake up and you're like, I just slept. How is this possible, right? But not only do our bodies break down, our minds don't work the way they're supposed to, but because of the fall, we're separated from God. And so our souls are separated from God, and so this is a bad place to be in. And so what Paul does is he begins to show through the rest of the book that everything that the fall undid, the work of Christ, is going to restore. And I will challenge you, I'll say this now and I'll hit it again. Your view of the gospel is too small. Your view of God is too small. If you wonder why, J.I. Packer said this, if you wonder why we live lives, it's because we have lost the majesty of who God is. If we really understand and we get a grasp of the majesty of God, then we understand our brokenness and we understand what Christ has done for us. And that's why in chapter 12, Paul says, be transformed how? The renewing of your mind. If your mind is futile in chapter 12, as we move through the gospel We get to the pinnacle of the greatest book, the the greatest chapter in the greatest book of the Bible, Romans chapter 8. We get to the end of that, and then we see from there on that the point of restoration, that God is restoring all things. And that Greek word for all means all, everything. God is restoring everything back to himself. And so what happens here is as Christians, we neglect thinking. There's a reason why people think, oh, that's cool that... You're a Christian, and that you, you they think that we're kind of dumb. Why? Because we don't think well. It takes effort. It's hard to think. We want answers now. Wikipedia, or we want to go to this new thing called ChatGPT and type a question in, and it puts an answer out for us, and we're good to go, right? We're lazy, but God does not call us to be lazy in our mental life. Remember, we're called to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. And if we don't do all three of those things, we don't live the life that Jesus has intended for us. You see, in the book of John, when Jesus says that I have come and they they may have life and have life more abundantly, he's not just talking about heaven. He's talking about now. That we have abundant life because we understand the richness of a Christian worldview. So, during our time together tonight, I want to answer three fundamental questions. Number one, what's a worldview? I understand that Luke has uh, said a lot of stuff about that over the last day or so. So, whatever he said is absolutely true. And I'm just going to acknowledge and defer to him. Not really. Uh, He told me, don't do that. Number two, why is a Christian worldview important? So we're going to look at what is a worldview, and then we're going to look at why is the Christian worldview important. And then number three, we're going to look at why do we need a robust Christian worldview, a robust understanding of the Christian worldview. So let me tell you a little bit about my testimony. I'll keep this quick. Um, so I graduated high school in 1997. That was a long time ago. Um, I was valedictorian of my class. I went to college, and my faith was wrecked because my youth group, Wonderful youth group. I I loved. Really good friends with him. But growing up in the 90s, there was a whole different mindset about uh, youth and activities and things like this. And there was a whole different mindset about culture. And basically, it was build the big churches, invite everybody, give them pizza, positive peer pressure, and they're going to be okay. And then you sit in a, a class and you have a teacher tell you, there's no way you can believe this stuff. because And here's all these arguments. And so my faith was really wrecked in college because I just kind of went through the motions as a Christian in high school. I was a believer, but I didn't really think well. And so then I graduated college, I uh, got a degree in history, and I went in seminary and finished a master's degree in Christian apologetics. And I felt this pull on my life to invest in you all so you don't make the same mistakes that I did. Because the world that you find yourself in, that according to what Paul says in the book of Acts, has been ordained that you live in this time for this reason and for this purpose. And the world that we live in is awash with cultural confusion, all these misinterpretations of what the gospel is, they have... All of these ideas of who they are and what is good and what is right and what is true and what is pure. And they have all of these conceptions of this that run opposite of what Scripture says. Why? Because we see here their minds don't work the way that they should. And oftentimes as Christians, what we do. Well, I'm just going to pray that Jesus comes back tomorrow and I don't have to deal with this. I'm going to stick my head in the sand and I'm going to hope that it goes away. But the problem is almost all of you all in this room have one of these. And you get on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or any news source or whatever, and the cultural issues are now in your hand. And how do you engage with them? And so a lot of times what we do is we we have this mindset of, well, I'm just going to pull back because Scripture promises us through the words of Christ that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, and so I'm just going to pull back. But the problem is we have a fundamental misunderstanding of what gates do. Gates are defensive structures. And so, what does that mean? Instead of Christians pulling back, the gates of hell cannot withstand the church moving forward in the culture. Do you see the difference? It's not that we pull back and retreat, it's that we move forward with truth. But if we don't know how to speak truth, I heard Luke some of those things yesterday, if we don't know how to take the way, the capital T truth, the life, into a culture that denies the existence of truth, then what do we do? So as Christians, part of your calling is to have a robust life of the mind. Why? Because Paul says... Whether you eat or drink. Notice those are the two most basic things a human being can do. Whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. So if you're a student in this room, how you approach your homework and your school and your academic study is an act of worship. I'm going to say that again. How you approach your academics is an act of worship. I had a seminary professor that said this. Some of you men in this room are pastors. You're bivocational pastors, and for you to make an A in this class would be sinful. And we're going, what? And he said, for you to make an A in this class would neglect your, your responsibilities as a husband, as a father, as a pastor. But on the flip side, there's some of you in this room to make anything less than an A would be. So in the same way, I encourage you guys to see not just what happens in this room or at your church on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or whenever you guys meet. Worship is how we live all of our lives. How you drive your cars. I know, I hurt, didn't it? How you prepare for an exam. How you play your sport. All of that is worship. And if we understand worship in that way, then when we are told that we will worship God for eternity, then that means it's not some long church service where we just sing all day. And if it is, that's great. If I'm wrong, well, it's, going to be, it's still going to be fantastic because God deserves that glory. But if all of our lives are worship and we're going to worship for eternity, then that means that we're going to continue to do things for eternity. The cultural mandate that's given in Genesis chapter 2 where God tells Adam and Eve to cultivate and to keep, to arrange what I have given you in a way that glorifies me will still be present when we're with Christ. But none of that had anything to do with what I was going to talk about tonight. So um, I just, they said just go with it, and so that's what I did. Anyway, um, so what is a worldview? So we talk about worldview, and most... The simplest definition is how you view the world. Now, there are some of us in this room that have glasses on. You give me worldviews like, a, so a young man over here just put a set of sunglasses on. Now, what happens if I take my glasses off? Now, my prescription is not that bad, so I could still function. But I put his sunglasses on. How does my perception of this room change? It gets darker, right? And so if a worldview is how we perceive the world, then those who have a worldview commitment outside of Christianity are going to see things differently than we do. Why? Romans chapter 1. Their minds don't work the way they're supposed to. Now, you have to be careful. Don't go to somebody and say, the reason you do this is because your mind doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Because there was this bald guy that came to this church event and told me to tell you that your mind doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Don't do that. So if the simplest definition is um, how an individual sees the world, here's where we have to push in a little bit. Everybody has a worldview. Everybody sees the world in a particular way or a particular fashion. But just out of a show of hands, and this may be a complete and abject failure for me before you guys started, what, two days ago, day and a half ago? How many of y'all ever heard of the term worldview before now? You're in the minority. Now this term is coming a little more since like Dwayne Wade is saying, well, since my child is now identifying as transgender, I have to change my worldview, right? So now people go, oh, worldview, what is that? Dwayne Wade said it. Who's going to be next? LeBron? Okay, let's move forward. And now it's a concept we have to pay attention to. Because a celebrity said it. But this idea of worldview is how we see the world around us. And so everybody has a worldview. And so what this means is that every song that you hear, every book that you read, every poem that you read, every show that you watch, every movie that you watch, every cultural thing that you engage with is out of somebody's worldview. And so we have to understand how these contours of a worldview work. And so one of my seminary professors at at Southeastern, he, he said this, and it really helped me to think through this concept of worldview. He said, and I'll say this slowly in case you want to write it down, that a worldview is a system of beliefs. Did you use this definition, Luke? Good. All right, a worldview is a system of beliefs. By which an individual, notice these three things perceives, interprets, and judges reality. So a worldview is a system of beliefs by which an individual perceives, interprets, and judges reality. So, worldview, system of beliefs by which an individual perceives, interprets, and judges reality, and as Christians, we don't press in enough because we all live in the same reality. Some people might deny that, but we all live in the same world. Now, when we think about this concept that I gave you, this idea of perceives, let me give you the definition according to the American Psychological Association of the word perceive. Perception is the is the way we become aware of objects. Relationships or events. So perception, you don't have to write this definition down, just you just summarize it. Perception is how we become aware of relationships, events, things. We can just we can just say it this way. Perception is how we become aware of reality. And for the American Psychological Association, it's through our senses. We can touch, smell, taste, see, and hear. All right? Now, that we'll talk about in a few minutes, but um, historically, there's this big argument about truth and how we know it, and I'll I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment. But notice, if it's how we perceive, interpret, and judge reality, that means that our worldview determines what we think reality is. Notice I said what we think it is, not what it actually is. I lost anybody yet? All right, so our worldview, it, it determines what we think reality is. So that's perception. Number two is interpret. How many of y'all have ever worked with an interpreter before? Anybody? All right, so you go on a mission field, you go to a Spanish-speaking country, and you don't speak Spanish, and they don't speak English, and so you have somebody in the middle that is, you speak to them. And by the way, here's a pro tip. Look at the person that you're speaking to, not the interpreter. When you're on a, because uh, you're talking to them, not tell them I said this. Yeah, they figured that out. You talk to them, it makes it a whole lot more personable. Um, I may not have done that and experienced like, how that goes wrong. So take a pro tip look at the person you're talking to, don't worry about the interpreter. But you have a lot of trust in the interpreter that what you said is actually right. And so this idea of a worldview, it interprets our understanding of reality. So we say, this is what we think reality is, or this is our, our worldview, determines what reality is, and then it, our, our worldview makes sense of it, right? So it's how we, we perceive, interpret, and then the last part is it's how we judge. Our worldview will determine how we judge if something is good or bad and why is it good or bad. Now notice here, I said everybody has a worldview. So that means everybody has a conception of what reality is. Everybody has an interpretation of what reality is. Everybody has a, everybody has a judgment about what reality is. So with that as our understanding, then what we want to do is that we want to look at all of these worldviews. You could have, you know, hundreds of components, but I want to give you five components that every worldview has. Five components that every worldview has. So if everybody has a worldview, then that means everybody's going to have a statement about each one of these components. The first one, I'll save you the big long word, the nature of reality. So the first component of all worldviews is somebody's going to have a statement about the nature of reality. Luke mentioned that he talked about Darwinism the other day, right? And you guys probably heard the term naturalism or materialism. So those individuals who are committed to that worldview, they believe that all the world is a box. There's nothing supernatural, right? And so that's really the only two options you got. You either have all there is physically, naturalism. Or there's something outside of the box. Supernaturalism. Everybody has an opinion on that. The second component of every world view. Is the nature of truth. What is true? And more importantly. How do we know it's true? There's a large philosophical debate. Over do I trust my senses. Or do I trust my mind. Right? Uh, One of my favorite. Uh, music artist, and unfortunately they they were really a band of Christians that were committed to making music, and now they've deconstructed their faith and, and moved away. It was a band called Thrice. And he had a song called Staring at the Sun. He says, Do I trust my heart? Do I trust my mind? Why is truth so hard to find in this world? That's a song about epistemology, about the nature of truth. Everybody has a statement about it. The statement, there is no such thing as absolute truth, is a statement about the nature of truth unfortunately they expect everybody to believe it that's default would make it absolute right so the easy way to get out of that is if they say there is no for everybody no okay cool i don't believe it if they say yeah it's like that's the nature of absolute truth how do you explain that one right the third component of every worldview um, is anthropology what is a human being And for you guys, if you watch how technology kind of spirals and it begins to move faster and faster and faster, like, I can talk to my watch. I can type in and have a conversation with a robot called ChatGPT, and it feels like that I'm talking to a human being in some ways. So this concept of what is a human being um, is really important. And, And let me push in just a little bit here. This is the issue in the abortion debate. The issue is not, is it wrong to kill a human being? The issue is, is the entity in the womb a human being? And if we don't think through worldview and how to, how to engage at that level, then we're doing ourselves a disservice. Because now if that's a human being, then my argument against abortion is that's my neighbor. And I'm called to love my neighbor as myself. That make sense? By the way, let me encourage you too, when we get to missions and the Great Commission... If that's your neighbor, then the most important thing you can do is to tell them the truth. The truth about their status before a holy God. And the seminary professor that I had, he he said this, and he said this probably 15 years ago, and it, it haunts me still. There's two reasons we don't share our faith. Number one, we don't share our faith because we don't actually believe it. We don't believe that people who die apart from Christ will spend eternity in hell. Or number two, we don't care. And that's it. Oh, but Billy, like, what, ask a question I can't answer it. If you care enough, you'll learn how to answer the question. You'll engage with them. You'll walk beside them to say, hey, I don't know the answer to this, but let's walk through it together. And so when we talk about fulfilling the Great Commission, if we don't share our faith according to Danny Aiken not me it's because that we don't believe that people who die apart from Christ will spend eternity in a real place called hell we don't care and that has chilled me since i heard him say it and i'm glad that i can share that with you because i hope that it i hope that it resonates with you all like it resonated with me because now i see that person in front of me and say is it did i not open my mouth because I didn't believe it or I didn't care. And, and we have to redefine evangelism, by the way. Successful evangelism is not defined as I love you. because it's not about you. Successful evangelism is best seen in the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower does what? What's he concerned with? The only thing he can control. He reaches in the bag and he casts out the seed and he can't control where it lands. But if the seed doesn't get out, then it's not going to fall on the fertile ground. And yeah, it's going to fall on rocky soil. And you're going to have conversations with people that go terrible. But here's the other part about it. Since faithful evangelism is defined as sharing your faith, I have seen some of the most well-structured presentations of the gospel, and nobody responds. And I have seen some conversations where people go, that was the worst Presentation of the gospel I've ever heard, and people respond because in our weakness, God is made manifestly great. So anthropology, the next piece is theology. Theology, that that T there theology. It's just a study of God. Doesn't to say that God doesn't exist is a theological statement. Does God exist? What is God like? And and if you notice here, notice the difference between Islam and Christianity. Islam, God, God is not personal. Allah has no care for what happens with human beings. He's not triune at all. Christianity. God is one being in three persons. He's insanely personal. He's transcendent, and yet he's imminent. He is with us, and he is among us, but yet he is perfectly holy. So theology is going to be another component. And lastly, ethics. And let me make a distinction here about ethics. Because too many times we as the church have preached morality instead of ethics. Let me give you the difference. Morality is what is right or wrong. Ethics is why is it right or wrong. And if we understand the why something is right or wrong, let me give you an example. If we believe that life begins at conception, and we believe that the entity in the womb is a human being... Then when we come across something like um, stem cell research with uh, fetal stem cells, I mean, you can't look that up in the back of your Bible. If you could, it would be weird because that would be way before that technology ever existed, right? But if life begins at conception, then we talk about stem cell research. I, I watched a video on 60 Minutes one night where there was a Christian family, and uh, the lady said, look, here's the deal. We're... We're going to use in vitro fertilization because my grandmother had breast cancer, my mother had breast cancer, and I had breast cancer. So what we're going to do is we're going to fertilize the eggs in the test tubes and then we're going to run genetic tests on all of those embryos and the ones that don't have the markers for breast cancer, then we're going to implant those and I'm going to stop cancer in my family within the next generation. And that sounds good and that sounds noble until you go, what are you doing with the other embryos? Because if we believe that life begins at conception, then those are people. You, you see the difference when we begin to think through anthropology and theology and ethics and all these things? And so those, those worldview components, they, they have some questions that go along with it, right? And we all ask these questions. They're fundamental questions of human existence, Where did I come from? Why am I here? What happens when I die? What is my purpose? We all ask those questions. And if you're a naturalist and you believe there's nothing outside the box, but you live like you have a purpose. I mean, some of the best atheists I know go, Well, I want my I want my kid to have a good education. Why? So they have a good job. Why? Because when they die it doesn't matter. There's no difference but you live your life as if you do have a purpose. And so we have to begin to see, if we understand worldview thinking, we go, wait a minute, if this is what your worldview says, let's carry that out to its logical conclusions, and you'll find that they don't like that. They don't like living there. Let me give you another example. I was having a conversation with a guy, and he said, Billy, I believe ethics are completely relative. What's right for you is right for you, and what's right for me is right for me. And I said, that's interesting. Do you lock your doors at night? And he said, "Yeah." And he had told me before, like you shouldn't oppress your, you shouldn't oppress people by forming or forcing them to believe your truth. And I said, "Well, do you lock your doors at night?" And he said, "Yeah." And I said, "Well, that's that's interesting because if you if you hold to relative truth and relative ethics, then that means that by your own definition, you're oppressing people to think that they shouldn't take what belongs to you. And so the fact that you lock your doors at night shows that you act because you believe people shouldn't take your stuff, and they should believe that too." But if we don't think through worldviews, we don't think through those, those things. And it's not about getting a silver bullet to defeat an argument and walk away and we drop the mic. That's what happens on Twitter and social media, and that's why people think that Christians are full idiots. Because how do we present ourselves most times? We're just yelling at each other. There's no, there's no dialogue. So I've already read um, the passage I wanted to look at there for a minute. But I wanna, what I want to do is let's just boil this down to three simple questions. I mean, we can talk about origin and identity and all those things, but let's look at three simple questions that every worldview answers. And if you guys can just resonate with this and move through it, um, I think it will help you. Again, as we look at things like anthropology, what is wrong with the world? Right? So let's look at those three questions. Number one, what is real? What is real? God is, He is the ultimate reality. And because He exists, I mean we don't spend enough time in the book of Genesis. If you go to Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning, brashit bara Elohim. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That means that God pre-existed any sort of beginning that he, everything depends upon him. He is the ultimate source of reality. So this question of what is real is followed up by the question of what is true. And here again we could say God Jesus says I am The way, the truth, the life. And then lastly, what is real, what is true, what is good? Every worldview seeks to answer those three questions. And just think about this for a minute. We talk about beauty a lot and and we go out and some of my friends who are materialists and are atheists and they'll Instagram these like beautiful sunsets. And I'm like, why do you do that? Because your worldview says survival of the fittest is what matters. And how does that help you survive? It doesn't. So that means that you appeal to some sort of beauty, which means that that picture you took is closer to a standard of absolute beautifulness than the the gloomy, gray, rainy day. You're not Instagramming that. Why? So where is this standard of goodness? Because if it only comes within the box... Good is a, good's a relative term. You have to pull outside of the box to even define what good is. See, this is how worldview thinking can work. This is why that I'm so passionate about it. This is why that as we begin through it, what happens here is the Christian worldview. Question number two, why is the Christian worldview important? Because the Bible tells us to pursue wisdom. The Bible tells us to find wisdom. Wisdom is knowing how to live well as a human being. so we talk about wisdom being knowing how to live well as a human being. That means, as, as academic dean, we have um, uh, put forth four objectives for our school. Committed, connected, balanced, and wise. Wisdom means that if we know how to live well as a human being, then that means that we understand how God has created this world, and we understand how to live in the world that he's created. Now, here's, here's the challenge. Whether you believe God created the heavens and the earth, He still created the heavens and the earth. It is what we call a propositional truth. It is true whether you believe it or not. And so for our friends that are not Christians, they find themselves in this position where God has said, this is how you will flourish. He puts Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, you can do anything you want. Don't eat of that tree. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth Take what I have given, it's worship and obey, it's cultivate and keep. What's interesting is the language there, the same word that is used for cultivate or worship is the same word that's used in Leviticus to describe the priestly duties in the temple. And he's saying, take what I have given you and do something with it. But our friends who don't believe in Christianity find themselves in a really tough position and they go, I don't understand why my life is a train wreck. But I reject everything the Bible says about how I should live my life. Do you see the problem there? If we don't live the way the Bible teaches us to live in God's world, it's like trying to play a board game by your own rules. It's not going to work. The creator of the universe has endowed certain orders in creation. I mean, think about this for a minute. Individuals who believe that truth is relative, I hope that those individuals do not build airplanes. Because if you're going to build an airplane, you better hope, or if you're going to be on an airplane, you better hope that whoever built that plane had some sort of notion of what gravity is, that had some sort of concept of the coefficient of thrust that it would take to get that plane in the air so that you didn't just shoot off like a spaceship, but you were able to get off the ground. Think about those of you that drive. Your parents tell you the hopping distance. Why? Because water reduces the amount of friction, which means it's going to take you longer to slow down or to stop. That is a created order that God has put in creation. We call it physics. Science came out of a Christian worldview. I mean, think about this. Your science teachers tell you, trust the science. They tell you, believe in science, because we know every time that we take two atoms of hydrogen and we put it with one atom of oxygen, we're always going to get a molecule of water. That is consistent, and it's going to happen every time, over and over and over again. But that whole process comes out of chaos. It doesn't come out of order or design. It comes out of chaos, and we just got real lucky. See, here's the thing. Science can tell you that science works, but science can't tell you why it works. And anytime time they do, they're engaging not in science. They're engaging in philosophy. And we have the corner on philosophy as Christians because we have truth. We know what is true. All right, I've got to pick up the paint. I'm just kidding. Uh, it's only 830. Why do we need a robust Christian worldview? Many of us, this was my story in high school. Here was my understanding of the gospel. And and let me be clear. This is the gospel at the most ductionist level. The gospel is much more than this. The gospel was, you're a sinner, you need Jesus. And that is certainly and most definitely true. But that's not all of the gospel. The gospel's got four stories. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. If we want to know what heaven's going to be like, go read Genesis chapter 1. If we want to know how we're supposed to live and why things are wrong, go read Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 3. Abraham Kuyper, a famous Um, Dutch theologian said There is not one square inch Over all of creation In which Jesus does not declare Mine Notice here He didn't say planet earth He said all of creation That's all those galaxies And Paul writes in the book of Romans That all of creation Is groaning for redemption That the cancers that we have to live with and the natural disasters we have to live with, all of those things are acts in which creation is grieving for redemption. And so when we see that the work of Christ doesn't just draw us back to God through creation, back to God through his work. But if we just focus on those two chapters in the middle, and most notably because we're just concerned with ourselves, we don't understand the richness that's in the Christian life because we're called to be culture makers. The creation mandate that we see in Genesis chapter 2, right after Adam and Eve are joined together, what does God tell them? Be fruitful, multiply. As part of that process, they would disciple their children. And so it would be physical descendants that would fill the earth with worshipers of the one true God. The Great Commission doesn't change that. They're spiritual children, not physical children. You see the difference? It's the same command. Be fruitful and multiply. And so when we think about the robustness of the Christian worldview, and I mentioned those categories of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, we need Christian worldview to engage in this cultural moment. This cultural moment is um, that your grandparents never would have dreamed of. I mean, let's just be honest. We live in a world in which it's entirely accepted as normal to where somebody goes, well, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. And we go, oh, yeah, okay, sure. That's normal now. That's seen as normal now. And if you don't adhere to that, if you don't champion that, then you're seen as abnormal. But we have to understand that within this created order that I mentioned, We've got these relationships. There are four relationships. Maybe Luke talked about these. I don't know. We have an upward relationship with God. In the garden, these are all perfect relationships. Upward, inward with ourselves, outward with other human beings, downward to creation. And what happens in the fall? The upward relationship is severed, the inward relationship is severed, the outward relationship is severed, and the downward relationship is severed. I mean, look at it. What's the first thing that happens? Eve goes, it's his fault. Adam goes, uh, you put her in here with me. It's her fault. Then they blame the snake. Then they're told, you will work the rest of your life by the sweat of your brow. Work is something that becomes a chore and not as something that is an act of love and, uh, and worship. That God cast him out of the garden. But before he does, they, Adam and Eve, they tried the first attempt at works-based salvation by sewing together fig leaves. And God says, that's not going to be enough. Let me, in me, an act of grace, provide for you before I cast you out of the garden. But through the work of Christ, all of those relationships are restored. We're restored back with ourselves. We're restored with our other human beings as image bearers. We're restored with God, and we will be restored with creation. This is why John writes that, Behold, he saw a new heavens and a new earth. Ladies and gentlemen, when the curse of sin is lifted off of us, our existence will be so Ridiculously different We live so much Under the curse of sin That we don't know how it presses in on us But when we experience our glorified state Where the curse of sin is lifted off of us What a feeling That's going to be But can you imagine Adam and Eve They went from A state of Sinlessness To under the curse of sin And God tells Eve Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first pronouncement of the gospel, that your offspring, your offspring will crush the head of the serpent, but the, the offspring of the serpent will bruise his heel. And I can just imagine that with every child that Eve has, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? So we as Christians... We have to understand that in order to engage with this cultural moment, we have to have a robust, a robust Christian worldview. I mean, think about the issues that are relevant in yours and your friends' lives. Racial reconciliation, that's an identity issue because we don't see people as image bearers. We put value in socioeconomic status, that defines me. My, my race defines me. My ethnicity defines me. Know what defines you. That is, who, that is a part of who you are. But what defines you is you're an image bearer. And that's what gives you ultimate worth. And when we begin to give human beings value based on anything other than they are image bearers, the value that we give is incomprehensibly short of the value that they bear as image bearers. But other issues that you guys face... Issues of, well, if I can't love who I want to love, then I can't be who i want to be. I was filling up with gas the other day, and I saw an Amazon Prime delivery truck. And the back of it said, love is when somebody acknowledges how I identify. And I went, well, that's really interesting. Because I don't think it's really quite loving if I know a family member who struggles with anorexia. And they identify as overweight, and I go, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to acknowledge how you identify. And that's love. No, it's not. Love is identifying and understanding that they are image bearers and that we give individuals the value as image bearers. Does that make sense? So a lot of the issues that you guys face as teenagers are rooted in a false concept of identity. You are more than your grades. You are more than your athletic ability. You are more than the relationship and young ladies in the room. Do not fall for the lies of some of these young men. Because they are going to puff you up and give you ideas of your value based on something other than the fact that you're an image bearer. And if you want a good idea of how they view individuals, watch how they treat their mother. Young men, be better. Value your sisters in Christ as image bearers. And then we wonder, well, why do things go crazy? Because we don't, we don't live the way that God has told us to live. So all these, all these identity issues that we see, they're, they're so ingrained in our culture that we buy into the lie. And some of us, maybe even in this room, if I post something on Instagram and somebody doesn't like it within five seconds, what have I done wrong? And my identity is the social media account. No, your identity is much deeper than that. Your identity is that you're an image bearer of the king uh, another thing that we see here and I'll, I'll start to land this plane in just a minute another thing that we see is this concept of truth now now watch this and, and be careful we we live in a culture that has this dichotomy of truth that word dichotomy means two levels of truth and so they'll do something like this how many of y'all let's see um How many of y'all go to a public school in here? Anybody? Nobody. Oh, my goodness. This is the most blessed group of people I've been around. Why, like, uh, this is. (laughs) Why are you clapping? I didn't do anything. I just asked a question that revealed a whole lot about this room. Like, I have never been in a room that nobody in the room, except for me and, and my man back here. All right, so those of you that have not had the trouble of experiencing this, here's what happens. How many of you have engaged with somebody and they'll say, well, that's religion versus science. Or that's religion versus history. Buy into this like secular idea of a fractured view of truth to where, and here's, here's, here's how this is kind of set up. I'll do this quickly. If you believe that all there is is the box, this naturalism, then everything has to be explained by relationships inside the box. There's no revealing truth outside of the box. Right? So the way this works is they'll say, here's science. And science proves what's true. So if it's proven by science, it's a fact. If it's not proven by science, it's your opinion. Oh, that's your religious opinion? Oh, that's good for you. I'm glad you had that opinion. But don't try to make anybody else believe it because that's your private opinion. That's not a public truth because science proves to us everything is true. So this idea of this facts value split is anything not proven by science is an opinion. Where am I going with this? That statement is not proven by science. So is that your opinion? That everything that's not proven by science is an opinion? I just choose not to believe your opinion. Okay. But we hold this fractured view of truth. And so what happens is as we get close to Easter, people are going to go, well, that's a religious truth. No, ladies and gentlemen, the resurrection is a historical truth. We have more evidence outside of Scripture that there was a man who lived in Jerusalem, that people called him Jesus. They believed in all these things that he did that was crucified, buried in a tomb, and the tomb is empty. There is more evidence for that outside of Scripture. So, not for the evidence. Oh, well, they used the wrong tomb. Okay, so you're going to tell me that Joseph of Arimathea, who bought that tomb, goes, "Oh yeah, I didn't know that was my tomb." I mean, if they really have a problem, we'll produce the body, go to the right tomb. Oh, well, they they were hallucinating. Okay. Let's let's go through that one. Um, So so Paul says that he appeared to me, and then he appeared to 500 people at the same time. Now, I have never taken any sort of hallucinogenic drug. But I dare say, if we all did that at once in here, we would not all see the same thing. (laughs) That's why Paul says, there's 500 people here. Go ask them. Or the disciples. It was this power play. Really? Really? What did the disciples get out of all this? Did they get money? Did they get fame? Did they get political power? Or did they get women? No, they got their heads lopped off from the rest of their bodies. Many people will will die for something that they believe to be true, but nobody will die for something they know to be false. Many people will die for something they believe to be true, but nobody will die for something that they know is false. And if you're going to make it up, If you're going to make it up, why do you choose the women to be the first ones to see the resurrected Christ? Because how were women viewed in that society? You couldn't even have them as a witness in court. They were so unreliable. So you're going to make it up and you're going to choose the women. You're not going to choose Pilate. You're not going to choose Caiaphas. You're not going to choose Ananias. You're not going to choose any powerful person. You're going to choose who were seen to be the most reprehensible people in society and go, yeah, that sounds right. C.S. Lewis does a masterful job of this in the Chronicles of Narnia. Who are the first two to see Aslan? Lucy and Susan, they go, Oh, you're you're just longing to see him. It's the same concept. And so lastly, we have to understand that when we talk about a Christian worldview, actually two things. We have to do this as agents of restoration. We're not called to just have a salvation for us and that's good. We're called to be agents of of restoration and reconciliation to where we restore shalom. You look in Genesis chapter 1, shalom, it's universal flourishing for all of creation. And so now we look back to Genesis chapter 1 and we we ask some questions. And I can repeat these later if you want. What's evil I can stop? What's missing that I can create? What's broken that I can fix? What's good that I can celebrate? And here's the thing. Every one of you in this room can find pockets in your own life that you can say, Hey, here's something broken. Shalom. This is missing. I want to restore it to Shalom. Our student council at school uses that. And we're a missional school, which means that not everybody at our school is a, as a believer, even as a Christian school. And they go, What is, what is broken at school that we can fix? And it's not light bulbs. What is missing that we can create? What's good that we can celebrate? What's broken that I can fix? All those questions, right? Or how we, we engage with this act of restoration. But, but here's the thing, and here's where this all has to boil down to. If we're going to effectively fulfill the Great Commission, we have to have a robust Christian worldview. And we have to know how to articulate that worldview. Many times, we're going to have to identify that that person is a naturalist, so God's not even on their radar because all they have is the box. And so when you go, well, the resurrection proves that God raised Jesus from the dead, or the empty tomb proves that God raised Jesus from the dead, and they go, "Uh, there's no God, so okay, cool, whatever. You're going to have to deal with their naturalism before you deal with the resurrection. Does that make sense? And we have to do this that... Is consistent with grace and truth and love. And so we call this process contextualization. Imagine a triangle and you have the person, the situation, and the content. And I grew up and it was well, just memorize the Romans road. That's all you need. Until somebody asks you a question that isn't Romans three, twenty three, Romans five, eight, Romans six, twenty three, Romans nine and ten. What if I go off the page? What if they go off the page? What do I do? Oh no. We have to know our faith so well that we can move in and out of these conversations with people who are in different existential situations so we can share the gospel with them. But too often, we don't know how to do that, and it goes wrong. And let me give you an example I hope that you've all seen. How many of you have seen Toy Story, please? Like, okay, good. All right. Not as many home, as the homeschool crowd, uh, but we have a Toy Story. For those of you that have te- seen Toy Story, when Buzz Lightyear first arrives on the scene... And he gets out of the box. He doesn't know the rules of Andy's room. And so everybody thinks he's an idiot. If we don't know how to effectively share the gospel in different contexts and, and and cultures, we're no different than Buzz Lightyear. And so what I implore you guys to think through, and it's encouraging to me to see this many people... Giving up, uh, you know, a couple days to dive into God's word and to worship him in spirit and in truth. I I don't see this every day. You would think, well, you teach it a Christian. I don't see this every day. And so I want to press in on you guys to pursue the life of the mind. If we believe that Christianity is the truth of all of reality, why are we afraid of any questions? It's not that there are not answers for it. It's that we're too lazy to find the answer sometimes. So don't be lazy Christians. There's enough of them out there. There's enough of you in this room that if you begin to understand how the Christian worldview will impact your sphere of influence, eternity will be changed forever. So be better. think hard things ask tough questions one of the things that really spurned my growth as a Christian is that if I ask a question how can this really be true you know what happened oh we got to pray over them they're asking questions they can't ask questions they said what was all of that like is that really true Ask questions. Jesus is not afraid of your questions. He welcomes them. What do you say to Thomas? Put your hands on my side. See who I am. Ask the questions. But we just say, Jesus, help me with my unbelief. Because this doesn't make sense. Because I see this in front of me, but I don't see your picture. But Billy, what... What is God's plan for my life? God's plan for your life is to live the good life of knowing God, loving God, imitating God. The rest of it, find out what you're passionate about, find out what you love, find out how you can love people, how you can make God glorified in whatever it is. Whether that is being a plumber for Jesus, because God knows we need more ethical plumbers and lawyers and nurses, and doctors, and car salesmen. Yes, more ethical car salesmen. (laughs) And so for you guys, my, my prayer for you is that you'll embrace the... because you got a whole lot in the windshield. And there's some of us that have a whole lot more in the rear view. And I don't wish that I could go back and do it all over again... Because this is God's sovereignty in my life has brought this position. But I'm able to speak to you guys from someone who struggled with the questions of Christianity. Is this really true? And I don't want you to have the same struggles. Can I pray for you? Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your love, your word. You did not have to reveal yourself to us, but you did. Some of the most profound words that we have is that you exist and that the Bible is your word. That you are there and you are not silent. So Lord, I pray that you will, um, you will just pour out a, a special anointing on the individuals in this room to where they will see and savor the work of Christ above anything that the world has to offer. And that you will equip them in a way that their their mind will just be attuned to the things of your word, that you will equip them in a way in which they can engage the culture, uh, in a way that, Lord, we're, we're not afraid of, of of wrong ideas. We're not afraid of ideas that may challenge us. But, Lord, we know that you are true and you are good and you are real and that when we ask for wisdom, you will give it to us. And I ask for wisdom for these uh, th- these students and these um, These leaders in the room, thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace that you have poured out upon us through the work of Christ. And it's in his powerful name I pray. Amen. Thank you all.